next Sunday morning is going to be uh, it's going to be interesting. We're going to be gathered together, uh, as Bruce said uh, as he opened up with worship this morning. Uh, this is hopefully for for a time anyway. You don't know what the future holds, uh, but hopefully going to be our final Zoom meeting. And then next week, next Sunday morning, we're going to be gathered back in the building. And Helen is going to mention a bit more about that a little bit later. And we're going to be able to worship together in the building. We're going to be able to sing. We're going to be able to lift our voices, something that we have not been able to do together uh, for a long time because the law has just not allowed that. And it's a significant moment for us, uh, one that many of us have craved for a very long time. And yet, even though it's a significant moment, it's going to be a very strange moment as well. It's something we have not been able to do for nearly 18 months. And that's a long time not to be together, isn't it? 18 months. And during that time, many of us might be, have become accustomed, we have become accustomed uh, to new patterns in our lives, new priorities. We've picked up new habits. And just when lockdown started, it meant a lot of change for us. We have to rethink. Uh, we have to move in different ways. We have to look at our schedules and our week. And it's going to, just as it took some consideration going into lockdown, it's going to take some consideration and discernment as we move out of that. I think we're buzzing. Uh, Olivier, would you mind muting yourself? I think that might be coming from you. There you go. It was. There you go. It's always Olivier. He's always the culprit. We've got you. Uh, so, yeah, it's going to take some as, as much as it took some consideration going into lockdown. It's going to take some considerant consideration and discernment as we come out of that, as our patterns shift and our patterns change again. And each of us is different. Each of us has our own anxieties and our own expectations of what happens next. As we meet together at church, I'll tell you this now, there will be teething problems as we come back together in person, in the flesh. Uh, we've gotten used to Zoom. We've gotten used to how this functions. And it'll take some time for us to readjust to the logistics of, of being back together again. It's also worth mentioning, as, as many of us will know, that we are not the same church coming out of lockdown as we were going into lockdown. We are different um, as many churches have found out during lockdown we we have been the same but we have lost people during this time we've also gained people there were things that we were engaged with prior to lockdown that we will not be able to be engaged with when we get back in many ways as we've as we've kind of prayed about this as leaders as we've prayed about this as a church in many ways it feels like we are at a beginning and that it's not a matter of rebuilding that lies before us but actually building fresh and as I said last week when I was speaking this past two years has seemed and it has been quite a humbling time for us as a church we feel we've been humbled and it will take us time to find our feet again so let's be patient with one another uh, let's act in love and compassion towards one another uh, and let's let's be willing to serve one another we have changed it was inevitable and that's not necessarily a bad thing there's a new day before us and I'm convinced and I'm not just saying this because of hype and buzzwords I'm not one of those people who's into hype or buzzwords but I'm confident that God is up to something that God is up to something and if we're willing to take it slow and steady if we're willing to remember and to refocus on Jesus command to love one another then I firmly believe God will surprise us now that doesn't mean it's going to be plain sailing and I think it will be easy. But as a Pentecostal person, and I know as a Pentecostal church, whatever sailing lies before us as a church, whatever the weather brings, all I long for is that our sails as a church would be filled and propelled forward by the breath of God's spirit. That's what I really deeply long for as a church. And so this coming week in preparation for us reopening again, 
in preparation for us meeting together, in preparation of this new day as a church. Uh, we want to invite you as a church to join us in a week of prayer and fasting. Uh, now, Olivier, when I hand back to him in, in, in a little bit, is going to go through how that will look formally this week. But outside of those formal moments, I want to encourage each of us to give ourselves in prayer and fasting this week. And so I want to spend a bit of time this morning just going for what I mean by that and what I mean by fasting, because it is one of those words that get, gets often confused and misunderstood. So if you have a Bible next to you, uh, I'd love it if you could turn with me uh, to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, we've been looking at the Beatitudes the past few weeks, uh, and the Beatitudes are part of this wonderful uh, sermon Jesus gives called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and so all we're going to really do this week is just jump ahead a bit of the Beatitudes and carry on with Jesus' sermon. Uh, and we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 6. I was going to start at verse 5, but I think we'll start at verse 1 in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew writes and records Jesus saying this, Take care. Don't do your good deeds publicly just to be admired, because then you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to some, give a gift to someone, don't shout about it as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I assure you they have received all the reward they will ever get. But when you give to someone, don't tell your left hand what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in secret, and then your Father, who knows all secrets, will reward you. And now about prayer. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I assure you that the, that is all the reward they will ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you and pray to your father secretly. And then your father who knows all secrets will reward you. When, we, when you pray, don't babble on and on as, as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered only by repeating words again and again and again. Don't be like them because your father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. Isn't that a great promise? I love that. I think that's amazing. That Pray like this. Our father in heaven, may your name be honored. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. Give us our food for today and forgive us our sins just as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your father will not forgive your sins. And when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do, who, love, who try to look pale and disheveled so people will admire them for their fasting. I assure you that is the only reward they will ever get. But when you fast, comb your hair and wash your face then no one will suspect you of fasting except your father who knows what you do in secret and your father who knows all secrets will reward you. It's, God that, it's good to know that God knows what we do in secret. It's also a little bit worrying that God knows what we do in secret, but it's great that God knows what we do in secret. Now, at the start of lockdown, uh, we found ourselves as a family in a bit of a predicament. And we, find us, we found ourselves having to buy something and purchase something that we haven't purchased for a very, very long time. Now, I'm just going to, I've got a few props with me, so I'm just going to stretch. Oh, felt that in my age then. Uh, and so I, we, we kind of ended up buying one of these. Now, I don't know if you can see what that is there. Anyone want to kind of shout out what that is? Soap. Yeah, we, we found ourselves buying soap. Now, now, hang on. I know what you're thinking. 
you're suddenly like, ah, that's why Tristan wore so much perfume. I, I know what you're kind of thinking, uh, but no, no, we washed. We did wash before lockdown. Don't worry. We were clean. We were hygienic. Uh, but like many people, we use liquid soap. Uh, but when lockdown happened, liquid soap suddenly disappeared off the shelves. The people who grabbed the toilet rolls and the pasta also grabbed all the liquid soap. And so we ended up buying ourselves a bar of soap, which is something we've not done for a while. But we had a problem. We had a problem because our bathroom sink, like most modern bathroom sinks, didn't have a preformed crevice in the top of it where you could put a bar of soap. It was flat. And if you ever try putting a wet bar of soap on a flat surface, it just slips and slides everywhere. Uh, and the other problem we had is we didn't have a soap dish because when they got rid of the crevices uh, in the sinks, people started doing soap dishes. But we didn't have a soap dish because we've never needed a soap dish. So we had a double problem, but we got creative because even though we didn't have a soap dish, we did have one of these. I've got to stretch again, just bear with me. We did have one of these, if anyone wants to take a guess at what this is. Anyone know what that is? I'm looking at, you can unmute yourself to shout it. That's all right. You will be on the recording later. A butter dish. That's right. A butter dish. You, you can take the top off. Don't worry. Now, a butter dish and has a nice little crevice there that we, we could use to put our soap in. Now, we've had this butter dish for 21 years. It was a wedding gift for me and Steph. And we've never used it ever once. But suddenly, suddenly in the midst of lockdown to hold a bar of soap, this thing suddenly had function and it suddenly had purpose. It wasn't the purpose it was intended for, but that nice little crevice handles a wet bar of soap really nicely. And so it wasn't what it was intended for, but it worked well and it did the job. Now, that's sometimes the case, isn't it? Sometimes on occasion, some things can work well outside of their intended purpose, uh, but it's not always the case that that happens. Uh, so, for example, keys, keys, if you've ever tried this, aren't brilliant for opening paint lids. If you've ever tried it, they don't work quite well. Uh, the arms of sofas are not brilliant for sitting on. My mum used to tell me off of that all the time, and then I discovered why. Uh, chairs have four legs for a purpose, even though I often think they have two. Uh, and fingernails, if you've ever tried this, fingernails do not make great screwdrivers. They do not make great screwdrivers. And it hurts. It really hurts when that goes wrong. And fasting, I suppose fasting could be another case in point because the purpose and, and the practice of fasting, especially in religious circles, is something of a bit of a checkered history. Now, now fasting crops up in our, our modern, modern world. A lot of dietitians, a lot of health gurus talk about fasting. I'm not talking about health and diets today. I'm talking about religious fasting. But in religion and in the history of Christianity, uh, fasting has kind of often strayed off its intended purpose. In some places, in some parts of Christianity, it's almost been elevated to law in history. And it's kind of become used as a commandment and placed apart as a burden upon people, even though it was never commanded as a law in either the Old or New, New Testaments. In some places, fasting was used and misused, sorry, misused as a form of punishment, as a form of punishing our bodies as in, in a way which is quite worrying. And in some places, fasting kind of almost became superstitious, that some people started teaching that if you fast, you can persuade God to do anything. 
In other words, if you want something really desperately, then don't just pray about it. Pray and fast. And it's almost like you're forcefully pushing God's proverbial arm up God's proverbial back and he will do it. And in some other places, fasting has become so routine. It's become so the norm that like everything that just becomes so routine, it, it kind of becomes this empty practice and it's just mechanically observed and the heart behind it totally slips or even worse, it just becomes about what we can give up, about what we can give up. And then in other places, fasting has just been abandoned altogether. Nobody speaks about it. Nobody does it. Uh, and it's quite surprising. I know over the years of, of being employed and speaking to work colleagues, whenever I've mentioned the fact that Christians fast, sometimes they're quite surprised because they don't think Christians fast. They just think that's something that Muslims do. And then there's those other times in the history of Christianity when fasting suddenly gets a book deal and it becomes a trend uh, and people just jump on the back of it and it becomes just another fashion thing. Now, even in Jesus' day, uh, from the passage we've just read, the priority and the motive behind fasting, as well as prayer and as well as giving to charity, giving alms, wasn't where it should have been. It was being misused. And for some people in Jesus' day, as Jesus points out, they prayed and they fasted just to draw attention to themselves. It made them look pious. It made them look devoted to God. And so the focus wasn't where it should have been. And so when I think about fasting and I think about the history of fasting within Christianity and the way people, some people still talk about it today within church circles, I, I, I find myself agreeing with something John Wesley, the, the Methodist reformer, once said. And he said this, that some people have exalted religious fasting beyond all scripture and reason and others have utterly disregarded it. And that's the kind of predicament we're in, where, where some have elevated it beyond all scripture and all reason, and there's other parts of the church that just utterly disregarded it. Now, I'll repeat this in a few moments, but I need you to know that fasting is not a law. Fasting is not a punishment. Fasting is not a superstitious act. It's not about looking pious. And the focus of fasting, I'm going to suggest, is not even about us giving something up. Now, bear with me. I will get to that in a minute, but it's not about us giving stuff up. And yet fasting, it does have its place and it is important and it can have beautiful results if it's exercised within its intended purpose. Now, I'm not going to do a Bible study this morning, although we could look at a number of texts that talk about people who describe people fasting. And that can help us to grasp the heart of what fasting is and what fast is fasting isn't about. So for example, you could go to 2 Samuel in chapter 12 and look at David fasting uh, after his incident with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. You could look at Nehemiah chapter 1 or Daniel chapter 9 where both Nehemiah and Daniel receive some news that causes them to fast. You could look at Jonah's preaching in the, in the book of Jonah and when he arrives at Nineveh and he gives his message and the city of Nineveh fasts. In Exodus chapter 34, Moses probably does the most extreme fast you'll probably find in all of the scriptures. My personal favorite fasts are in Isaiah chapter 58 and Zechariah 7, uh, where God tells the people of Israel the fast that he really desires. We could pull apart the scriptures that we just read together in Matthew chapter 6 and what Jesus is saying and not saying. 
we could go to look Luke chapter two and the prophetess Anna uh, that Jesus uh, parents meet in in the temple and she uses fasting as part part of the exercise of worship. Jesus also fasted. We could look at that in Luke chapter four. The disciples fast in in, in Acts thirteen and Acts fourteen, and even Paul talks about fasting in the context of marriage in, in one Corinthians chapter seven. Now don't worry if you can't remember any of them. Uh, when I share my notes later, those passages have been, I, I saw people scribbling that down and I saw Sarah trying to quickly log that into her head, but don't worry, it'll be in my notes later. Now, all of those passages are definitely worth taking the time to study. And when you study those passages, you find that in many of them, it's implied that people often give up food. They fast from eating. And there could be many reasons why they do that, which I'm not going to get into this morning, but it's not the case. It's not the case that people always fasted from food. It's not the case. When you look at those stories and those examples, you'll notice that a few of those fasts that are mentioned seem to be regular fasts. They seem to happen on a regular basis. The prophetess Anna seemed to fast on a regular basis, but most of them, most of them are particular moments. The one-offs here and there. This is something that happens that causes people to fast. Some of those fasts, when you look at them, seem to last for days. Jesus and Moses, for example, fast for 40 days. Some of those fasts are just a mealtime. Uh, and some of them aren't really, again, about meals. They're just about adopting a different set of lifelong patterns. But whatever the case, however it looked, the focus was the same in each of these incidents. And I suppose that if I was to reduce those passages down to a specific purpose of what fasting is about, then I would describe it this way, that in the Bible, fasting is about cultivating space and time to be exclusively with God in order to be moved and shaped by God's heart. Let me say that again. It's about cultivating space and time to be exclusively with God in order to be shaped and moved by God's heart. So let me repeat again what I said a minute ago. Fasting is not about what we can give up. Rather, it's an invitation to use our time and our energy differently. Fasting is not about manipulating God, thinking that if we do this, then God has to do that. Instead, it, rather, it, it's not about us getting a hold over God. It, it's rather giving space to God to get a hold of us and about us being vulnerable before God. Fasting is not even about us proving to God how much we love him and how much we can sacrifice to him. It's not even about our accomplishments at all. But to follow on from what I said last week, when we we're looking at that, the first beatitude, when we looked at blessed are the poor in spirit, fasting is about acknowledging our dependency on God. It's about having a poverty of spirit. It's about crying out to God for God, if that makes sense. And that's why whenever fasting is spoken about in the Bible, it's never on its own. It's always coupled with prayer. People didn't just give stuff up in order to just give stuff up. They reinvested that time, time formerly spent on other things like food, and they spent it in coming before God, in seeking God's face. Prayer and fasting. Fasting and prayer. It's important that we, we grasp that. Uh, the Methodist theologians, two Methodists I've quoted today, maybe I'm, maybe I'm becoming Methodist, I'll have to pray about that, but uh, the Methodist theologian E. Stanley Jones, he once described prayer as this, and I love this quote, I want, I want to listen to this, he said this, if I throw out a boat hook from a boat and catch hold of the shore and pull, do I pull the shore to me 
or do I pull myself to the shore? And he said, prayer is not pulling God to my will, but the aligning of my will to the will of God. Prayer is not about pulling God to my will, but aligning my will to the will of God. And so this week, we want to invest time in coming before God, aligning our will and our hearts to God's will and God's heart. And so all I'm asking this week is for each of us to devote ourselves in prayer to God. There'll be times when we will corporately do that, but I'm inviting each of us as individuals in our own time to stand before God, maybe to be still and silent before God, listening and allowing God to speak to and shape each of our hearts. I'm inviting you to fast this week. I'm inviting you to adopt an alternate set of patterns in this coming week and to take some time, time that you would normally spend doing other things and use that time to be with God. It could be that you fast certain meals. It could be that you switch off the television set and you stop watching your soaps for this week. It could be that you come off social media. It could be that you normally kind of do a bit of exercise one way and you do it another way to incorporate prayer into that. But again, I'm, I, I want to stress, I'm not inviting you to give things up. I'm inviting you to use your time and energy differently. Take that time normally spent preparing and eating a meal, that time normally spent watching a specific TV show, that time normally on, on social media could be different for all of us and use it to be with God or as, or as Steph and, and as juniors explored on Friday, give up in order to fill up, use it differently, use that time to listen, to seek and to wait upon the Lord. And the goal of this week, just to stress this again, the goal of this week of prayer and fasting is not to bend God to our will. It's not for us to bribe God. It's not us seeking to have our way. If there's an end goal to this, then I just want us to be more in awe of God, more receptive to God, that our hearts would be open and spacious and clear to allow God's heart to come and fill our hearts. And on that note, in a weird way, in a strange way, I'm reminded of one of my favorite stories, one of my all-time favorite stories. It's a classic for me, uh, a classic. It's a story that's up there with The Lord of the Rings and The Count of Monte Cristo. It's an extraordinary work of literature, uh, an amazing work of literature. I'm going to bend down again. If you hear a crack, I do apologize that it is me. Just hold on. Uh, and it's this story. Like I said, an amazing work of literature. It should be it should be in the top 100 books to read. Uh, but it's a story called A Squash and a Squeeze by Julia Donaldson. Uh, if you know Julia Donaldson, uh, she also wrote an amazing book called The Garuffalo, uh, which I, it should also be in the top 100 books to read, uh, along with Tiddler, which is an excellent book. Uh, and my all time second favorite of hers, Stickman. If you get time to read that tonight. Uh, please do so. It'll elevate your spirit and it'd be amazing. Uh, but I, I would read this to you, but I can't read it to you because copyright laws will not allow me to do so, uh, especially as this will be going on YouTube a bit later. But in a squash and a squeeze, uh, there's a little old lady who lives all by herself uh, with a table and chairs and a jug on a shelf. And a wise old man who's walking past hears a grumble and grouse that there's not enough room in her house. And so she asks the wise old man for some advice. And the wise old man advises her to bring in her chicken, to bring in her hen. Now the old woman's confused, but she brings in the hen uh, and it doesn't make her room, her, her house feel any bigger, but it just makes it smaller because the house, the, the hen makes a mess 
and it knocks off the jug on the shelf and it just feels small. And so she asks the old man again for some help. And the wise old man tells her to bring in her goat, which she does. But the goat makes more mess and it chews her curtains and her table legs. And it's full of fleas that the hen just picks at all the time. So again, she asks the wise old man for help, who then tells her to bring in her pig. Anyone here would like a pig in their house? It, they're quite a common pet these days, apparently. It's uh, quite popular. But the pig raids the larder. And so the house that was too small for one now feels teeny for four. And so she asks for help again. And the wise old man tells her to bring in her cow. And things just get worse, causing the woman to cry out, heavens alive, because the house that was teeny for four now becomes weeny for five. And so one final time, she asks the old wise man for help. I don't know why she keeps going back to this old wise man, because I, I don't think his help's paid off so far. And this time he says, take them all out. And so fine, one by one, she pushes each of the animals out. First the chicken, followed by the pig and the goat. And finally, with a lot of effort, she pushes out the cow. And with all the animals gone, the old lady changes. She begins to appreciate what she has. And she thanks the old wise man for what he has done because the house that was weeny for five is suddenly gigantic for one. Now, I love that story. I think mean, it's a great story. And I'm telling that story because I hope at the end of this week uh, that our eyes would just be opened and there'd be a sense of appreciation that'd be in there. As I said at the start of, of what I said this morning, uh, we've been through a tough through two years. We've been a, for a tough two years. And maybe we've picked up some baggage, some occupants in our heart during that time. And maybe there's things that we need to push out of our hearts, things that have come to occupy us in such a way that they now motivate us and they lead us. Maybe there's bitterness. Maybe there's anger in our house. Maybe there's resentment. Uh, maybe there's still gossip and slander stirring in our hearts. Maybe there are distractions. Maybe there are consumer impulses that are driving us. And maybe, understandably, some of us just feel fed up, fatigued, disillusioned, and just uneasy with everything. Or maybe there's the nostalgia of the good old days or an obsession with the next new thing that has come to possess us. But all these ways, all these things, all these occupants have a way of distorting and disrupting and making a mess of our hearts, and they stop us appreciating one another and appreciating what God wants to do within us and through one another. I love uh, what Paul says in Ephesians that when he talks about the church, he talks about us being put together by Christ, that we have been put together by Christ. But all these things can occupy our hearts in such a way that we don't appreciate that, and we get disgruntled. And our house becomes filled with things that are just taking up room. And so my hope this week in this coming week of prayer and fasting, like the old lady in that story, is that the Holy Spirit will highlight those things to each of us, every single one of us, not just to us as a church, not just to us as a church leader, but every single one of us. And that the Holy Spirit would help us clear that stuff out this week. And it will make a way, bring a newer way, a clearer way of thinking into our hearts and a fresh appreciation for each other, for our church, and for God. And what I'm really hoping for this week, for you and for me, I suppose, is what the Apostle Paul prays for, for as, he, as he writes his letter to the church of Ephesus. And you can read it in 
uh, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 16 to 23 and Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16 to 21 and, and Paul writes these wonderful prayers not saying to the people here's what you need to get but he's saying clear all this old way of thinking out and then you can appreciate what you have with each other in Christ and I'm going to close with this prayer and I, I kind of drafted it into a prayer because this is what I really long for as a church this week and so I pray that God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, would give each of you spiritual wisdom and insight so you can might grow in the knowledge of God this week. I pray that your hearts would be flooded with light so you can understand the confident hope he has given to those who have been called, his holy people, who are his rich and glorious inheritance that this is the same might. I pray also that you would understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in a place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ. And he has made him head over all things for the benefit of his church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ. who fills all things everywhere with himself. I pray from that, from that, for that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. And your roots will go down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power. I pray that you would have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high and how deep God's love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. And then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us, to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That's my prayer for you this week as we come together as a church in prayer and fasting. May God bless you. Back over to you, Olivier.